0: Okay. Hello, and welcome to the New Books Network. My name is Victoria Readman, and I'm your host today. I'm thrilled to have the chance to speak with Tracy White, Dr. Ronald Davis, and Janet Defoe about The Puzzle Solver, a scientist's desperate quest to cure the illness that stole his son. I blew through this book in one sitting. It was riveting, beautiful, and opened my eyes to the world of myalgic encephalomyelitis, also known as chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME-CFS. It's a terrible, understudied, and misunderstood disease that Ron and Janet's son, Whitney, suffers from. So thank you so much for Tracy, Ron, and Janet for coming today, and how are all of you?
2: Great. It's really happy to be here. Thanks. Thanks for setting this up, Victoria.
1: Yeah. We're fine. Yeah, thank you.
0: <laughs> thank you for me. So uh, Tracy, do you mind starting off by reading The Expert uh, from
2: your book? Sure. Um, okay, this... This is on page thirty-three of the book. Um, it's uh, it tells the story of the of the first time I meet uh, Whitney in person. He, um, I, when I first started writing about Whitney, he was just far too sick to allow anybody other than caregivers into his room. Mm-hmm. He had many oversensitivities, um, and I I wrote a magazine story before I got to meet him and I wasn't, I expected that perhaps I never would meet him throughout writing the book. Um, but he discovered, he and his family discovered that when he took, um, the medicine out of van, he was able to come out of this kind of semi-comatose state and actually communicate a little bit with others and look in his family's eyes and, And eventually he could allow one or two other people in his room as well. So this was the first time, and I met him in the hospital. Mm -hmm. He still can't talk, so he's communicating with his hands. I smile and nod, and he smiles back. It's like watching the image I've created inside my mind of this young man, built of bits and pieces of stories and interviews and writings and photos come magically to life. It's easy to like him, and I do like him right away. Suddenly, the once-invisible patient, who has no voice, lifts his hands to speak. Hmm. Whitney points to me with his index finger, then curls it down to meet his thumb, creating an O that he crosses with his left index finger, creating a Q. Question, I ask, he nods. With pleading eyes, he shows how desperate he is for me to understand, for others to understand that it's what it's like for him lying in this bedroom day after day, year after year, sometimes lacking enough energy to lift a finger to press the button by the side of his bed to call for help. Growing agitated, he reaches out and grasps invisible bars in both his fists and pounds them into place, evenly spaced, two by two around his bed. Your life is a prison, I ask. He nods. His head flops back. His eyes roll up in his head. His mouth drops open. You're like a corpse. He nods for many, many hours of many, many days. He pinches his white skin. He's not invisible. He's all too real. What do you do while you're lying in your room? Do you meditate? I ask. He shakes his head no. He doesn't have energy to meditate. He spends most of each day using what bits of energy he has to control the pain of digesting the liquid food that gets pumped into his body, traveling through his digestive tract, thick and slow like cement. He sleeps very little. He has frostbite on his belly from the ice packs that manage the crippling pain through most of the day and into the night. He touches the skin on his arm again and grimaces. It hurts to be touched, he nods, then spells out A-L-O-N-E, alone, riding on one of the soft brown blankets that traveled with him in the ambulance from our home. Our eyes glisten with tears. He plasters his face with a mask of fear, his mouth frozen in a silent scream, then spells out another word on the blanket, P A N I C. Panic, and my breath catches as I feel a fist of panic punch into my own gut. Mm. Whitney touches the gray in his beard and shakes his head. He's lost so much time. He's missed so much. Rock bands that he might have loved, photographs he could have taken, stories he could have told, elections he might have campaigned for. He's missed the deaths of loved ones and their births. He's missed romances and marriage and children. He missed his sister's wedding day. His hopes lie with his dad. He nods as he spells it out on the blanket. D-A-D. Then he spells out H-E-R-O. Hero. His dad will figure it out. He draws a line across his throat and shakes his head. No suicide. It's not an option. He's living for the many others out there sick like him. If he can continue on as sick as he is, other MECFS patients will too. Suicide is far too common within this community, and he wants to help stop that. You can't talk, you can't eat, you can't listen to music, I say, sympathizing. At the mention of music, his beautiful face crumples into creases, rivers of grief. A sob escapes his mother. But then he recovers yet again, and he continues on. This is just part of his story. It's important the rest of the story gets told, too. Yes, Whitney has lived through years of hell, trapped inside his broken body, but his life wasn't always like this. He was an adventurer and an artist. He had girlfriends and a favorite dog, and he loved ice cream. He never felt anxious or panicked before he got sick. He shakes his head. He starts to explain. In his cupped hands, he holds the sphere of an invisible earth. You traveled the world, I say. He nods. I tell him I know of his travels. I know that he visited Jamaica and India, Ecuador, and Guatemala. That he campaigned for Barack Obama during his presidential campaign. And that he won photography awards. That he loved hiking and nature and tending his flower gardens. I tell him that I will write about his adventures. There would be gaps in the story, but I'd work to create snapshots of his life as best I could with words. Mm -hmm. The desperation in his face changes to some semblance of relief. And he smiles, same crooked smile his dad sometimes has, his eyes bright. He draws circles in the air with his finger. A bicycle? His head shakes no. A moped? No. A motorcycle? Yes. He nods vigorously (laughs) and grins. They told me you rode a motorcycle through the Himalayan mountains. His eyes crinkle into a smile. You see, I don't want to be here. His face says, "I want to be far away."
0: Thank you so much for sharing that, Tracy. It's beautiful.
3: Thank you. That makes me cry every time I hear it.
0: Ron and Janet, could you tell us a bit about your son and and his journey with ME/CFS so far?
2: Well,
3: uh, it's hard to know where to start. He had mono really severely when he was in high school, and then he got better. And then he went off to college and he went to Jamaica and to uh, do volunteer work, building some uh, homes in a remote community. And he got sick there and came back and was kind of dizzy, but then and had trouble uh, concentrating. But then he got better from that. And then he, I'm, I might get the order of this wrong, but... Um, He went to, uh, he went back to college and transferred to San Francisco Art Institute because he realized he really is a photographer. And then he went to India to help build a nunnery in Ladakh. And I got really sick in India Mm -hmm.
4: um,
3: and went down to 115 pounds. He was there for nine months Mm -hmm. and he realized he was going to die if he didn't come back. So he came back and I was so shocked. And then he kind of, through diet and different things, got better from that and went back to school. And then he campaigned for Obama and took photographs and went to uh, the inauguration and took amazing photographs there. But he was sick there and tired and it was cold. Um, And then when he came back, he caught a cold and he just never got better. From that cold, and that was two thousand and nine, and he set up a photography business in his in his his rental um, bottom of a house in Berkeley, and was taking photographs of weddings, which he loved doing. He he won the award, the bride's favorite award, Um, um, but he just got more and more unable to to do it, to do two weddings Mm -hmm. weekend. And he could only do one. And then once and then it got so that once he packed up his stuff, he couldn't finish the wedding. So he had to stop that. And then he lost his ability to just take care of himself. And his sister would go help take care of his, you know, do his laundry or help him do his dishes because he couldn't like Mm -hmm. do everything. And then he came and visited us once in March of 2011, and he just said, "I can't go back there because I can't take care of myself." So he moved in with us, and we moved. Me and Ashley and Ron moved. You know, all his stuff out of his house, and that was hard. Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, he couldn't even figure out what to do with it. We just got a shed and put it all in there, and. And then gradually at our house, he just got weaker and weaker. Um, he had to get a wheelchair and then he couldn't even get around in the wheelchair. And then it got to mm-hmm. so eat less and less. And, you know, um, and then it got so that he just had to be in bed all the time. And then it got so he couldn't talk and he couldn't listen to music anymore. And he couldn't really do anything. And then for years, he was just there sort of almost like in a coma, but not really. Um,
4: mm-hmm.
3: We developed lots of ways, little symbols and things to put on his bed, so we knew what he wanted. And we had a schedule. We've developed a, a schedule because um, the main uh, thing that we had to do was he was trying not to ever crash, which meant go over his energy limits so that he his whole body would just shut down. Mm-hmm crashing is really bad for MECFS cfs patients because you sometimes don't regain back, uh, back up to your uh, previous level of functioning. And uh-huh. so, so we had to uh, – um, anything unexpected would make him crash or any processing of anything, um, uh, just anything. It got so that we all had to wear black in there. We can't wear any print or anything on our clothes. We had to cover up all the print on everything in his room, Um, Mm -hmm. his computer and everything, all the little print, everything with black tape. And he has things in certain places in his room, and they have to be always in the same place because it will take energy for him to find it if he can't just reach over and get it, what he needs. Mm. But you have to do the same thing in the same order every single time you're in there like a complete OCD person Mm
4: -hmm. Um,
3: it's not really ocd it's because he can't he can't expend energy or it causes him to crash Mm
4: -hmm. so it
3: looks like ocd i mean uh, a a psychiatrist might say that it looks like that but it isn't that it's that Mm he can't process anything different because it takes mental energy and that causes him to crash so Mm when we go in there we do everything in the same order we can't touch him. We, um, I always wear the same clothes. I've, I've got like five different black t-shirts that, that I just wear all the time in case I have to go in there.
4: And, Mm
3: -hmm. and, uh, it's been a, a, an incredible learning curve for me because, um, you know, you know, it's kind of, when you don't understand what it is, um, it seems unreasonable what he's asking me to do. And especially mm-hmm. before we knew it was ME-CFS, he'd say, well, I can't, uh, well, at one point I had breast cancer and I had to have a mastectomy and I'm in the hospital. And I asked him to come sit with his dad in the hospital, you know, because that's a hard thing to do. It was a long surgery. Mm-hmm. He said he couldn't. And I was just like, what do you mean you can't? You know, we didn't know that mm-hmm. he had me And I was like, how tired can you be that you can't come and sit with your dad, you know, and, 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 you know, I'm not particularly proud of those moments where I just didn't get it, but we didn't know what was happening. And that happened a few times. And gradually I've learned, I really need to trust him when he asked me these things that seem really weird and unreasonable, because what they are is his avoiding expending any amount of energy. And I, say, I've really learned what expending energy means. You think of that as exercising, or if it's if you're not exercising, maybe it's getting up and fixing food, and below that it might be just brushing your teeth or just going to the bathroom. Now I'm going down the ladder now, or just sitting up or moving, or and, and it goes down to just awareness of somebody in the room. Like anything that you do when you're not dead is expensive energy. And that's something that people really aren't aware of when you are are such a low energy limit, what a small amount of something can do that can cause you to use up too much energy and crash. And I could tell when he's crashing, his face gets all red. Mm -hmm. His breathing becomes more shallow and frequent. and, um, And, you know, then he's even less functional. Um, so it's just been, um, really a difficult learning curve and, you know, with lots of mistakes along the way, but we've got it pretty, I mean, I think at this point we understand it a lot better and we do everything we can to accommodate him and take care of him in a way that, um, avoids crashing and it's,
4: Mm
0: -hmm. yeah. But not even just accommodating because... Not only are you helping him with his disease and um, learned so much about it and are so careful about his energy, but now you're giving back to the MACFS community, the far more broadly. Both of you, actually, all three of you. Um, uh, Ron, of course, with the work to uh, get to the underlying causes, looking for treatments. Janet, I, so far as I hear, you're doing so much work to to support um, CFS uh, patients uh, all over the, the country, um, who have questions, who need support, who want to learn how to, uh, communicate with their doctors. Um, so it's, first of all, thank you so much for doing all that work. Um, and I wanted to, I wanted to ask a little bit more cause you talked so much about Whitney's experience with MECFS. Um, but Ron, maybe you could explain what is it? What is MECFS?
1: Well, I think the best way to describe it is a a very systemic disease and it's, uh, it affects a lot of organs, uh, systems. It affects the gut, it affects the immune system, it affects the brain. Mm -hmm. Um, But if you look at a particular organ, like the heart or the liver or the kidneys, there's not very big effect there. Um, and so in fact, that's one of the problems. Because that's the, what a lot of doctors uh, assess. You know how is your mm-hmm. how is your heart? How are your kidneys? Uh, and they run uh, various tests to look for that, and they all come back normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, Janice just described uh, Whitney's situation. If you run the standard test that doctors do for your annual checkup, he looks like the peak of health. He has low mm-hmm. cholesterol. He has low blood pressure. He has uh, Uh, you know, a slow heart rate, uh, uh, there's no metabolites that they measure that are out of kilter. They're all uh, in the very normal range. Mm -hmm. And so they say there's nothing wrong. Now you're in the peak of health and yet they're bed bound. (laughs) So they they don't get it and they're not measuring enough things. Mm -hmm. And uh, they they can't conclude based on their limited uh, assessment of what's wrong. And that's what makes them think that it's imaginary, which is a really dumb thing to conclude. Just because you don't know what it is, don't conclude that it's made up. Mm-hmm. There may be a number of diseases like that, or if it's fact that it seems very strange. So, for example, they're very sensitive to a, a number of things. Uh, in case of uh, my son, uh, he's not very light sensitive, which is uh, m- most of the patients are. Uh, but he's very uh, hearing is very sensitive. He got. To, he wears. If we're in the room, he puts on these noise cancellation uh, 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 earphones that you know people who work on jet engines out on the airfield uh, put on. And uh, he's also sensitive to touch. He's sensitive to smell. We have, we, we put in a new fan in our kitchen, uh, in, sort of an industrial fan that pulls a lot of air out of the kitchen because he. Even, even though we have two doors in between our kitchen and his bedroom, he can still smell it. Mm-hmm. Um, so, uh, a lot of doctors uh, and and people, like family members, don't understand that sensitivity. Apparently, sometimes it gets extreme, and when, when they have sort of chemical sensitivity, um, just almost anything um, can, uh, can make them feel bad. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, so that's those are the symptoms. And then, if you uh, look a lot more uh, extensive at them, uh, and and measure lots of things, so we measure thousands of things
0: at your lab in Stanford. You mean?
1: Well, I had a. Um, I was involved in the genome project, and we did a lot of things to uh, to to advance what we do after the genome project. And that meant developing lots of new instruments and lots of new technology that related to when you know what the your genes are and uh, so we had a lot we have a lot of instrumentation so um it was uh, it was a perfect background for jumping into this and it didn't take us very long to uh when I when I realized that the doctors don't know what this is and I'm not a physician so I we would find doctors that would say oh I know what this is here's how you treat it well that never happened uh, <laughs> Um, and eventually I realized that, uh, we're not going to find a doctor. We, and, and there's a lot of really good doctors in this area. Um, and I really had to try to do a lot myself. And that's when I decided to abandon all my research that I was currently doing and, uh, and focus on this disease. And, uh, I lost a lot of really good people who didn't really want to do that. And they went off to other jobs and that was fine, but I did manage to re- maintain a, a small core. Very difficult to fund it because uh, uh, I used to run a lab of 65 PhDs. Uh, now I have 12, and uh, it's very difficult to fund this. Uh, mm. Difficult to get funding from NIH, uh, and I don't know exactly why, but they're not doing a good job. Anyway, uh-huh. uh, when we first looked at a lot of the data, it was very clear: there's a lot wrong, and uh, there's a lot of wrong in a lot of pathways, and and. And these, these pathways make small molecules and uh, they carry out a lot of the functions in the body. And um, about a third of them were way off, either too high and, or mostly too low. Mm. And if through those compounds that are up too low, you realize that a lot of them involve uh, what's you know, the mitochondria. Every cell has mitochondria, Mito- mm. little organelle in every cell that provides an awful lot of the chemistry, but also the energy.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And so it, it was clear that uh, the mitochondria were not working out very well and mm-hmm. could explain why there wasn't much energy. But then of course, why is the mitochondria not working well? And so that's sort of be- the beginnings of this. And we just keep, uh, uh, I guess it's like an onion, you keep peeling off things and trying to sort out, well, where, you know, why, what causes that? and uh, find what causes that. Then you say, well, what causes that? And you just keep uh, trying to track it back. We need to figure out what's the primary problem. And uh, and if we can, I think we have a chance of actually curing it.
4: Mm. You
1: know, our basic modeling is that something has gone wrong that can't reset.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And normally what happens, you get sick, uh, your body is... Changing and you know and there's a lot of things happening. Your immune system kicks in, and you uh, and but then you, you go back to to normal. And you reset, and and uh, these patients aren't resetting, and uh, and and they basically won't reset their entire life. Mm-hmm. Once you get this, uh, it's not a death sentence, but it, your life is not going to be uh, as what you'd expect. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I. There are occasional patients that get over it. I had a graduate student that came down with it about the same time my son did. And uh, she has now, she was sick for five years and then she got over it. And uh, in my discussions with her and our testing with her, she looks totally normal. Mm. She was very smart and she's still smart. And so I don't see any permanent damage that you can get from other kinds of diseases. A lot of diseases uh, just keep getting worse until you may die from them, or die mm-hmm. from them, secondary effect.
3: Could you say why she? Wh- why you think she got better? Please. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, she, she thinks she got better. Uh, she was she was even as a graduate student. She was a bit obsessive compulsive, uh, and <laughs> how she handled her data uh, was fantastic. She would always dive deep into her data and analyze it uh, much better than anybody else. That, I' worked with, so um, she said she thought that maybe the crashing was what was keeping her sick, so she decided that she had at all costs never to crash. Mm. and that's very difficult for some patients when they get very severe. but she said she managed to not crash for over a year, and she thinks that's why she got better, and I think it's extremely very extremely difficult for most people to ever do that
0: to be so careful about their energy that they just never overdo it.
1: Never expend it. It's not like, oh, I'll just do this this one time. Uh, Well, that's going to set you back for another year.
3: This is called pacing, and people actually measure their heart rate, and they figure out what heart rate they have to stay under so that they won't crash. And if you're extremely rigorous about that, it can help you not crash and maybe even get better.
0: That's incredible.
1: So we're working with uh, people that are making, you know, smart watches that uh, can measure things like the heart rate, and then they maybe set off an alarm when it gets too high. They don't have to keep uh, paying attention to it.
0: So yeah. that if you can be diagnosed fairly early in the course before the disease gets severe, then you can keep your symptoms in check and, and be very, very, very careful.
1: Yeah, that's correct. That's now, this disease comes in a, a, a great deal of, of severities but mm-hmm. uh, you're almost normal if you just, you're just you just careful to, to like my son, who is like one of the worst.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: And what happens when people get the worst is they often commit suicide. They just lose all hope, and they say, this is not living, and they decide to kill themselves. And it's really sad because um, my guess is if we can just get the National Institutes of Health to start funding serious research in this um, uh, and of course they claim they are, but that's not true.
3: <laughs> they found a little bit,
1: but it's woefully mm-hmm. inadequate.
0: Mm-hmm. And why is that? Why is there so much controversy around MECFS and, um, and I, I think an association more so than with other diseases that it is psychiatric or that treating one's anxiety or exercising will make it better. How did that happen with this clearly very severe disease?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. And it's um, hard to explain. Um, For the short answer, I think it's because this disease is so complex and so hard to understand and no one's been able to come up with uh, a cause or a cure. Um, And there is just a tendency within medicine that um, doctors get frustrated. If if they can't make someone better, they... um, They'll tell them well, you know, maybe you you must be making this up. Um, go mm-hmm. see a psychiatrist. Uh, that is not unusual with diseases that you can't. Doctors love to make people feel better, um, and it gets frustrating. Um, but it it also has just this fascinating history within our country because the first time it was really reported, it's been a, around for a long time. But the first time it was really taken note of in America was in the 80s in Incline Village. There was an outbreak of these patients with a mystery disease. And there were two doctors there that took them seriously and were really trying to help them. A lot of people didn't believe them. It's like they, It was like they felt like they had mono and it just wouldn't go away. Um, it lingered on and on. And then they got Worse symptoms and the brain fog, and sometimes they have gastrointestinal problems. And the doctors knew these patients uh, weren't make it up because it, they'd seen their patients before. But at the same time, um, people in the town—it was a—it's a tourist town—and they were very unhappy because helicopters came to cover this story. The CDC had come to to investigate, and the headlines are saying mystery. Disease, you know, epidemic in Incline Village, and it was ruining business. Um, so it was not an easy start. I mean, it had a lot of publicity, and then people started attacking the doctors and they started attacking the patients and calling them the Yepie disease that they were making this up. Um, mm-hmm. Early on, scientists did do some good work, but uh, scientists like Dr. Peterson in Tahoe and and Dr. Komarov in um, Boston, who saw these patients and really wanted to help them, um, they did try to do some good science. Um, and I think, really, if you read the book, there was there was a doctor working for the NIH, um, Stephen Strauss, who also started off serious, taking this seriously and doing research. And his theory was that this was caused by the Epstein Barr virus. And when he uh, his second study showed that that was not true, he got truly frustrated. And he figured, well, it must it must be psycho- psychogenic. It must be mm. caused by uh, psychological um, forces. And and then that was just basically the direction that the NIH went. They, they listened to him. Um, there was very little funding, in fact, funding that was given to, the, to, to this disease was misappropriated by the CDC and used to um, research other diseases. And basically, the understanding was that people thought it was wasting money um, because this wasn't a real disease. So also part of the problem was this disease was called chronic fatigue syndrome and it's just been a terrible name and, and patients hate it so much because even now when I tell people I'm writing about chronic fatigue, you get all the jokes about, yeah, I must have that. I get tired all the time. So it just makes people think that this is not a serious illness and that it's, it's mm-hmm. just people often being lazy or tired. Yeah, so that is why there's been this effort to change the name to myalgic encephalomyelitis, chronic fatigue syndrome, or ME/CFS. Uh, progress is being made, <laughs> but yeah, I think multiple multiple reasons for why
0: a lot of different intersecting factors and players and people's own interests and egos, uh, medicine and medicine, of course. Um, you mentioned that, uh, and I, th- I think this is a, a common theory that the uh, ME/CFS is often a post-viral disease. And so, I was wondering, uh, Ron, how ME/CFS has been related to the COVID pandemic.
1: Well, we think the thing called long COVID is probably ME/CFS.
0: So, what is long COVID?
1: Well, long COVID, as is what the, the patients call it, so when Patients uh, uh, become virus-free by testing. They still don't feel well. And uh, many of them now are uh, about six months uh, after they have been virus-free, still don't feel well. Mm -hmm. Look at the symptoms that they complain about, brain fog and a few other things. They pretty much fit the definition of Mm -hmm. ME-CFS. We plan now to um, do a study of them. We've written a grant, and we also have some donations specifically for that purpose. Um, and that's now and then comparing those patients with all the different uh, data sets that we have for MACFS. But I really think it is um, because there are just a number of viruses that uh, have been reported in the past that that lead to it. What to MACFS?
2: Well, the studies that show that about ten percent of people after there's a big outbreak. Just even of the flu, I think perhaps in, in Incline Village, it was a widespread outbreak of the flu. And a, about 10% of the people who got sick uh, never got better, came down with ME-CFS.
3: There are quite a few viruses that have been studied. West Nile virus, Ross River virus, about 10% of them end up with me and even one of the COVID.
1: Yeah, the original the original SARS virus had, and also the MERS virus showed people converting to MACFS.
0: That's so many different viruses. That's a huge proportion of people, 10%. Right. It,
1: it is, yes. And that's why you don't want to get these viruses. No. <laughs> um, it, it seems to be mostly uh, younger people that ha- this happens to, mm-hmm. uh, in 20s to 30s. Um, but it may just be how their immune system responds. Um,
3: so it's really sad that a lot of younger people uh you know don't feel like they have to be very careful because they probably mm-hmm. they're not gonna die because they aren't old and they don't have pre existing conditions. But what they don't realize is that they could get ME-CFS or long COVID and be sick, you know, for months and months or maybe the rest of their life
0: hmm So it's not a trivial virus to young people at all. There's thousands of
3: people who have this now and they're, you know, big support groups and Facebook groups full of them and doctors. It's just the same story again as mm-hmm. me of doctors not knowing what to do and saying that, you know, that it's just anxiety or it's just all in their head and they should just exercise and get over it or whatever. And the MECFS community has been bending over backwards to try to communicate with the long COVID community to tell them, you know, don't exercise and to, you know, help get doctors aware that that's what this is. And Anthony Fauci has actually said that it looks like what this is multiple Mm. times,
4: Mm -hmm. Um,
3: isn't getting out there very fast. And Mm -hmm. the recent New York times article, they talk all about long COVID and all the symptoms, but they didn't even mention I don't know if it was New York Times. It might have been NPR. Anyway, sorry if I quoted where it was.
0: Oh, that's okay.
2: <laughs> the New York Times did, magazine just did an extensive story on it, and they do talk about ME-CFS quite well, a bit. It
3: must have been the NPR one, um, uh, but they didn't even mention ME-CFS in it. So mm-hmm. what we don't want to happen is to have the world thinking that there's ME-CFS and then there's long COVID post covid syndrome like it's
0: two different things mm-hmm. because th- this post-viral lack of energy that's so so typical for me cfs
3: yeah it's probably the same thing and the funding should go to look at the, the big picture because
4: mm-hmm.
0: it sounds like me cfs isn't unique to any one virus and so it would make sense for covid to be just as likely as any of the other viruses to cause it
1: Yes, And it's Correct. a unique opportunity because uh, patients usually don't get diagnosed with the disease for maybe several years. Mm-hmm. All of our studies are people who have had the disease for a while, <coughs> and uh, things might be changing as they uh, progress. And mm-hmm. it would be good to look at what happens at the very beginning because it might tell us what actually went wrong first, and that might give us a much better clue as to what's really underlying this and how we might then figure out a treatment.
0: And long COVID might be a good opportunity to get the word out about MECFS more broadly. And
1: yes. And there's definitely going to be enough patients.
0: hmm mm-hmm. Especially if it's getting uh, coverage in uh, New York Times Magazine and the like.
1: I tell the uh, young people, you know, that, that getting this disease is like playing Russian roulette. Would you put a, a live shell in a, in a revolver and spin it and put it to your head and pull the trigger? Mm-hmm. To some extent, that's what you're doing by not being careful about this disease. Mm -hmm. There's a 10% chance if you get it, you'll never recover.
0: Wow. Um, Janet, I know you've uh, recently been helping someone you know um, who has a diagnosis of ME-CFS and was admitted to a psychiatric facility. I was wondering if you would tell us that story.
3: Yes, there there are actually two people recently. One of them is in Sweden, and he... um, had severe ME CFS, and um, he was actually taken care of fine in a care home. But they decided that this that it was psychiatric, and and they said they were going to put him in a psychiatric unit. And we mobilized the group ME Action and got over eight thousand signatures. And Whitney um, actually wrote a letter on his Facebook page to the hospital about what a bad idea it is to commit somebody to a psychiatric unit because they have mm-hmm. MSS and people think it's all in their head. And then today, one of the patients that I've been communicating with because he's been having trouble eating, and I was trying to help him up, figure out about a pick line where you get fed through your veins versus a J-tube, and also just give him ideas about what what to eat that might help. Um, They've decided... Um, He went in the hospital because he was losing weight, and the hospital decided that he was a danger to himself and that if he went home, he would just refuse to eat or just not do what he needed to do. I'm not sure. That's kind of vague. But Mm. they decided they needed to commit him to a psych ward. So I spent the morning communicating with him on WhatsApp, and he said they're going to come any minute and take my phone away. So I quickly got his sister's uh, phone number and his friend's phone number and now I have his brother's phone number and ME Action has referred him to a lawyer in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And um, it's just been really upsetting all day. He said, you know, I can I can I can deal with I could deal with dying from malnutrition if my body's just reacting to food and I can't eat it. He said, but I'm terrified of being in a psych unit, being killed by doctors who think that they're doing a good thing, but they're actually hurting me. He said, I'm just mm-hmm. terrified. So I listened to him be terrified all morning and tried to get him resources and sending him things, um, which he printed out. I think I did that previous. I don't know how that worked, but he the Institute of Medicine, National Academy of Sciences, has a report about MECFS cfs saying it's not psychiatric, and he mm-hmm. gave that to his doctors. And then there's also the ME Clinician Coalition, which is all the experts on ME-CFS in the United States mm-hmm. that have put out a handout and a website about what the disease is and how to treat it, and he gave that to his doctors. And I sent him the link to Whitney's letter to the hospital for the Swedish guy. And I've been communicating with ME Action. So I think we're going to put together something um, that we can use for this purpose. So we're not recreating reinventing the wheel every time this happens, mm-hmm. uh, but some kind of a handout with all these links and quotes by people about um, what, is appropriate and what isn't appropriate and is likely to hurt people
4: because mm-hmm. it's
3: entirely inappropriate to treat somebody for a diagnosis that they don't have.
0: Mm-hmm. It sounds like they mistook it for some kind of eating disorder when he already had this diagnosis, which explains just how painful it is to eat. And,
3: and he is eating. I mean, he eats and he has a pain and bloating and nausea when he eats and he's become very sensitive to carbohydrates and Mm -hmm. he tries to eat other things, but then that makes other things hurt. And so he's just having a terrible, it's the same thing that happened to Whitney where gradually he wasn't able to eat anything. Mm -hmm. So have a pick line and then a J tube, but these people aren't just focusing on the food and how to get him nutrition so that he can stay alive. They're focusing more on the psychiatry of it, which isn't what's the problem at Mm -hmm. all.
2: Well, this has been a problem for many years, particularly in other countries.
3: So he was, I asked him if his name is Thane. And I asked him if I could talk about him on this podcast. And he said, yes, thank you very much. Thane Black is his name. So we're hoping that people can rally around him and get the doctors the right information so that he does not get committed to a psych ward. Mm-hmm. And that's still in the air. He said the county's deciding whether they
0: will commit him. Because it all comes down to the question of whether they believe this is like a quote unquote real disease.
3: Yeah.
0: Wow. I hope that these kinds of situations just become more and more infrequent because it it seems obvious that that it is very much real and it affects millions of people does it not
3: yes yeah
2: up to two million in the united states 20 million worldwide and
3: you know who knows how many there are uh, uh, even uh, people who aren't going to the hospital and getting committed to a psych ward they're still confined to their bed and a lot of times they don't, you know, they don't really have very good care because the people around them don't believe them. If you read this letter to the hospital in Sweden, it's really true. I mean, he believes that there's a lot of homeless, you know, people on the street who, who have this disease, who just didn't have people to take care of them mm-hmm. like he does. Um, and they're unable to work and, you know, can't function.
0: Or get money for disability coverage or anything else where if you had it uh, other diagnoses and similar um, and similar care needs where you would absolutely uh, you know be given that care
3: it's really hard to get disability um, qualified for di- disability through social security. Whitney managed it in a, around two thousand and ten or so um, mm-hmm. on the first try, but i I don't i I'm not sure how he got that lucky or the doctors and I filled out these questionnaires. Um, but a lot of people now have to go get testing on a um, stationary bicycle, measuring their heart rate, which makes them worse, causes them to crash. It actually causes arm or yes. cognitive testing or they, and they send it all in and it gets denied. And then they have to go to a court and get up there in front of a judge and if you understand how sick these people are, it's just unconscionable that it's so hard for them to get mm-hmm. disability. And meanwhile, if it takes you years to get disability, what money is it that you're living on?
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: Whitney's lucky that we have money to help him. But if he now that he has disability, it's only $800 a month. There's no way he could live on that if that's all he had.
0: Yeah, especially for when his care needs were so high at the height of his illness.
3: Right. You know, at first, I it was so upsetting that I couldn't actually, I, I, I'm a child psychologist, and I had to write reports, and I couldn't write the reports anymore because I couldn't concentrate on it. Writing is a, is a difficult thing, as Tracy can also tell you. <laughs> um, so I stopped that, but gradually, it just took over everything, and I couldn't really work anymore. Um, mm. And, and also being out in the real world is weird. It's like being in an alternative universe because I'm in the universe of chronically ill people and, and somebody who can't function and, and doctors don't understand it. And even we still go to doctors and they say, Whitney needs psychiatric intervention rather than a J tube. Mm Mm-hmm. And, it, um, and I know all these patients who are so sick and who can't get help. And, and then when I go out into my old life with, you know, people that I know, it's like hard to relate to them because it, it's hard to even know what you say when somebody says, how are you? And I'm like... Uh. <laughs> Fine. No, I'm not fine. I, I've i figured out the best thing to say is, well. I'm doing okay, given the circumstances.
4: Mm-hmm. But,
3: and these are perfectly nice people. But it's like, they're people who think that your life goes on, you have kids, they go to school, they do their homework, they get into college, you get a job, you go on vacations, you know,
4: mm-hmm. and
3: life is completely not part of that world anymore. Neither one of us.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: my world is MECFS, taking care of all of Whitney's needs. And it's not just taking care of them. It's also communicating with doctors and insurance companies and um, prescription deliveries and refill subscriptions. And what are we going to try next? And, mm-hmm. and communicating with patients and reading on websites, things that might help. And it's completely consuming. And then So the people I relate to the most are the patients, the other patients. And I've made many really good friends. These people are amazing what they're going through. A lot Mm -hmm. of them have had incredible lives before this. And, you know, it's all been taken away from them. Mm -hmm. I do everything I can to give them hope and give them, help them to, you know, because some of them really want to kill themselves. And I try to do what I can so that that doesn't happen. Um, and it's really great now, um, with zoom and Skype and WhatsApp that I can talk to patients really all over the world, mm-hmm. just tell them what we've done to help Whitney. Cause many of them have no access to any information about it. So it's really taken over my life and Ron's life too. When he's a hundred percent in the research, well, 90% in the research and, yeah. To, you know, he helps me when he's home. He goes in and with Whitney.
1: And I spend time on the phone with with patients as well, all over the world. So does Janet. She doesn't mm-hmm. do, but. Um.
3: And trying to raise money, we do a lot to try to raise money. So that's our life. We sure is, it isn't what I ever thought my life would be before this happened. Mm-hmm. And all the stuff that had meaning to us we can't do anymore. And and of course, that's even more true for Whitney. I mean, mm-hmm. we can still listen to music and go for a walk around the block, but
1: yeah, when, we, we when, can't go anywhere. When people complain about sheltering at home and saying, we've, I've been doing this for months, I can't stand it anymore. My attitude is, well, well we've been doing this for a decade. No They're kidding.
0: Old... <laughs> <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> well, I can say, and I'm sure I speak for so many of the millions of people that you've directly or indirectly helped that I'm well, one, I'm so sorry for how hard it has been and how upside down it has turned both of your lives. But also like, thank you so much for bringing this disease into to the light and be being so steadfastly dedicated um, to finding it secure, to helping the people around the world any way you can. I, I, I know for a fact that um, the advocacy that both of you do, that Whitney does, that Tracy you're doing, um, is already making a difference, and I hope um, that I hope that we will see that play out even more so. Um, and I kind of wanted to ask that too. I mean, what you've gone through is sound are, are continuing to go through sounds so hard, but is is there reason uh, to hope? Is there for treatments for ME-CFS for understanding the pathophysiology? Uh,
1: well, I have, yeah, you know, I do have great hope because as we as we uncover what's going wrong, we come up with ideas about how we might uh, treat it. We, and of course, we try lots of things and um, we have a lot of, we have a number of really models that really fit a lot of the data mm-hmm. that we have and, and all the symptoms, uh, it's, but it's a matter of, uh, really validating those models, if they're right or not.
4: Mm-hmm. And,
1: and it's hard to do that in human. You know, if you have mice or bacteria or some other simple system, it's actually not so hard to do because you can do anything to them.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: It's really hard. So, uh, but I'm optimistic that we can find something uh, mm-hmm. either to help them or in fact cure them.
3: He also has, he's developed at least two different ways for testing, Drugs and supplements and any natural product to see if it will turn around the the trap that um, the body gets in, and that's really hopeful that they have a way to mm-hmm. do that now.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah, we've uh, we started a drug testing program that, uh, uh, and that that may be how we have to actually validate it is by developing a not a new drug but a, uh, an existing drug or a collection of FDA-approved drugs, which you can give off-label, and if we can find something that looks like it 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 really resets things uh, in our models, then we can try that on a patient. That may be what we have to do to figure out whether it uh, it really works or not.
2: And this this family too has uh, just by what they've been doing, they've brought hope to so many Mm -hmm. many people. That's why I really felt the need to, to write this book and play my part in her, helping them share their story. Um, there's just so many people out there that were hopeless and wrong with Juan's research and changing, really, uh, the medical establishment's view of this disease. He's been active in, in that, has a, as a role in that as well. Um, it, Whitney... Has also, you know, he agreed to be the the poster boy for this disease, and and he's um put his face out there and his story out there, and and mm-hmm. giving up his privacy to um to, to get people to understand what's going on and and um, bring them hope. So,
3: you know, I get messages like all the time. I have seven thousand followers on Twitter, and which is not something I ever expected to have. And I get messages all the time from people who say, you know, that Ron gives them hope or the only reason that they're able to keep going is because of Whitney or Ron or the things that we're doing. Mm -hmm. And conversely, sometimes when we're going through hard times or I tweet that Whitney's going to the hospital or that he has an infection or something, these, I get hundreds and hundreds of messages of people, you know, sending me hearts and emojis of, you know, flower arrangements bursting into the air and love and hugs. And it's really an incredible community. And I Mm -hmm. I think we're helping them and they're helping us. I mean, we're all supporting each other in the most beautiful way. If I just, was there some way that I could communicate to the medical community the truth about the extent of the suffering of all these people. Mm-hmm. So aware of it with all these connections I have. And uh, it, it, it it's, it's really just so tragic that it's not known in the public, you know, mm-hmm. this huge number of suffering people.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I,
0: yeah, as a doctor, I, I can say that uh, we are, so undereducated about this disease and and that there certainly are still so many stigmas that people have towards it and reading your book was truly eye opening for me uh, tracy and so again thank you and i i hope that you know i can contribute to getting this message passing it forward and helping the medical community to to understand but i mean it sounds like there's so many doctors who already do that and or try to, but it's a difficult culture to breach.
3: well, I want to thank you for your interest and for your <laughs> for your new desire to help these patients that it's so mm-hmm. good for people like you to be available for them to come to an open mm-hmm. person who's willing to try things for them and yeah. learn about
1: it. So I'm really heartfelt thank you to you for that It's, it's about one percent of the population has this or so they're in every community
4: mhm mhm.
1: And, uh, many of them need help.
4: Mm-hmm. Absolutely.
0: And what would be the best way for d- people not in the medical community to help, whether it's contributing like money to research or advocacy, you mentioned Emmy ME action, like how can, how can we get the word out?
1: Well, for those who have, uh, assets, uh, uh, sending money to support the research, uh, it's easy to find uh, you know, my site and, and and donate through our website. That's
3: the for Genome Technology Center. Center.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: That's listed in, in the acknowledgements at the end of the book as well. Yeah.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, that's what's limiting our research. I, I, I'd love to hire more people, but I can't. But we have a lot more ideas. We have to prioritize them to try to get the ones that have the most likely to work uh, but there's a lot of others that uh, we have to put on the shelf because we don't have enough funds to test them.
4: Mm-hmm.
3: So donate to the Open Medicine Foundation, and they um, they use their money to support Ron's research and also four other collaborative research centers that Ron has has supported them funding and mm-hmm. one at Harvard, one in Sweden, one in Montreal, and one in Australia now. Mm-hmm. And the other thing is, you know, give that book to people and get that book everywhere because it's it's not just our story. It's the story of the illness. And the more people that read that, especially outside the CFS community, the better. Um, mm-hmm. And just any way that people can, you know, get the word out there that this is a real disease and people are suffering and it needs funding.
4: Mm-hmm
3: standing and better medical care.
4: Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
0: And what is the work ME Action does?
3: ME Action is an advocacy group, and they have, gosh, I don't know what their exact mission is, but they do a lot of advocacy work, and they have many um, groups like Facebook groups, ME Action Global, ME Action USA, ME Action California, ME Action for Caregivers, and, and they... They um, mobilize people to sign petitions and to go to an advocacy day in Washington, D.C. And they have organized um, protests all around the world called Millions Missing, which mm-hmm. we find all the people missing from their lives and from the hiking trails and from wherever they can't go because they're sick. And um, we've had several years of uh, prote- of protests that have, gotten publicity all over the world um, that they organized. They've recently, you know, they had a petition for the um, man in Sweden who was getting, who's being threatened with a psychiatric ward. So they're a really great advocacy group. I'm sure they would say more that they're doing, but I don't, I can't think of more at the moment. Sorry, Emmy action. I didn't do you justice.
2: I talk about the advocacy day. Uh, one of one of their advocacy days in the book when i i go to washington dc with me action um, and and lots of other patients to talk to our representatives uh, it was really moving to see these people trying. Um, <laughs> try
3: it's and definitely a place to get to follow their um, their facebook page or follow them so you can get updates from them about things that you can do to help mm-hmm. um, They put out a lot of information. They're a great group. You can also watch the film Unrest, which was made by Jen Brea. um, And she was a co-founder of ME Action. And that documentary won awards all over the world and almost got a a, uh,
1: Academy
3: Award. Award. Um, And it is very informative about the disease.
2: Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm.
3: And it's a good movie too.
2: Yeah. It's really heartbreaking, but beautiful too.
3: It's Mm -hmm. not your dry documentary
4: Mm -hmm. Mm
3: -hmm. (laughs) at all. (laughs) It's very moving.
0: Well, thank you all so much for, for speaking with me today. Um, Again, uh, uh, Tracy's book is called the puzzle solver, a scientist's desperate quest to cure the illness that stole his son. Um, if this conversation has not sold it is absolutely beautiful heartbreaking uh and so eye opening about the world of a d- disease that so few people have heard of um so please please give it a read uh both the text version and audiobook are excellent um it just came out actually didn't it uh tracy it's been about 2 weeks so yeah 2 weeks yes so um <laughs> it's new it's very new Uh, and yeah, thank you thank you all so much. I hope you have a great day.